Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We're doing a lecture episode this week. We're going to revisit a speaker, lecturer, and spiritual leader that has graduated from this dimension, as all of our lecture episode guests have. And his name's Ram Das. Perhaps you've heard of him. And we're going to listen to a very cool, very rare, very awesome lecture from Ram Das from 1975. It's an amazing lecture, and it's called The Pull to God. Yes, I want to be pulled to God. I am pulled to God. And I hope I can pull you guys to God, too, in your own way, by your own volition. As usual, with our lecture episodes, I have a guest co-host. She was just here last week with us for our Beyond the News episode, which was so good, but so shocking and all those things that we did last week. She's here back again, Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs. Hello, Bryn. Hey, how's it going? Fantastic. We're going to learn more from Ram Dass from 1975. What do you think about that? I think there's always more to learn from Ram Dass. Can't have too much. What do you think about it? I think it's going to be amazing. And here's the thing. If you know about Ram Dass and his life, you know that there was a period in his life when he had a stroke. It was later in his life and it changed his mobility. It changed his speech patterns. So it's almost like there's two different Ram Dasses. Like the, I mean, it's the same guy, obviously, spiritually, but the vehicle was in one functional way in this iteration of Ram Dass's experience. And then the functionality changed, which created a, another Ram Dass. So, and I'm sure he would tell you that. And so this is again, pre-stroke. So it's that version of the experience, the Ram Dass experience. Bryn, do you have your tea? Are you ready to go? Are you uh, caffeinated? <laughs> I have some Tulsi chai happening right now and have my purple pen and my pink pen and my notebook and my smoky quartz and I'm ready to go. Nice. But before we do that, I need you to do something for me. Go to patreon.com slash midnight on earth. It's our new Patreon page. You can go there, check it out and pick a tier of support. That suits you because your support, your direct support allows me to create more. It allows me to invest even more than 100% of my energy into Midnight on Earth. And it gets the information out to even more people around the world. I'm very proud to say that as of today, we are up to 163 countries of coverage. We're exploding actually in listenership right now. And I really just appreciate everyone coming on and checking this out. You can see that we have an incredible roster of guests and I love the fact that we have so much coverage and 
this Patreon page is a fantastic way to help me grow this podcast even more. And we're going to activate people. The information that is in this podcast, it's encoded via the conversations that come up in the moment that we're almost channeling this dialogue. It assists in that expansion. So please, people, if you can, I know it's an interesting time in the human experience, but it's all mental as well. So if you can, if you feel the urge, realize that you're helping me, go to patreon.com slash Midnight on Earth. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us, and then you know exactly what's going on. When we have guests, when we have lecture episodes, beyond the news, whatever we're doing, get a notification directly to your device and you can engage. Perhaps you're in that exact moment when you're able to listen and it was all meant to be. And of course, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. They're your friends, they're your coworkers, you know them, you love them, you love me. Our frequencies are similar, match our frequencies for me. Bring them here, midnightsonearth.com. Okay, okay. Social media shout out out of the way. Patreon out of the way. And now we're going to dive into this lecture. And if you've never listened to a lecture episode with us, because again, like I said, there's new listeners coming on daily. It's exploding right now. Thank you, great mystery of the universe. Love, thank you, love. Thank you, all of it. Thank you, all. And the all. <laughs> Bryn and I are here listening, taking notes with you. And then after the lecture has concluded, we reflect and talk about what we learned together. But before we do that, even though Ram Dass has graduated to the other dimension, though, he's still alive and here with us. We still read the bio. We always read the bio of the guests, whether they're in the third dimension or out of the third dimension. And here's Ram Dass's bio. Ram Dass, also known as Baba Ram Dass, was an American spiritual teacher, guru of modern yoga, psychologist, and author. His best-selling 1971 book, Be Here Now, which has been described by multiple reviewers as seminal, has sold 2 million copies and helped popularize Eastern spirituality and yoga with the baby boomer generation in the West. He authored or co-authored 12 more books on spirituality over the next four decades, including Grist for the Mill, How Can I Help, and Polishing the Mirror. Ram Das was personally and professionally associated with Timothy Leary at Harvard University in the early 1960s. In 1967, Richard Alpert, before he changed his name to Ramdas, traveled to India and became a disciple of Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba, who gave him the name Ramdas, meaning servant of Ram. In 
the coming years, he founded the charitable organizations Siva Foundation and Hamiman Foundation. He traveled extensively giving talks and retreats and holding fundraisers for charitable causes in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. In 1997, he had a stroke, which left him with paralysis and expressive aphasia. He eventually grew to interpret this event as an act of grace, learning to speak again and continuing to teach and author books. After becoming seriously ill during a trip to India in 2004, he gave up traveling and moved to Maui, Hawaii, where he hosted annual retreats with other spiritual teachers until his graduation into the next dimension. And it sounds like the paralysis situation happened in 1997. So this is 20, over 20 years before that happened. So this lecture is called The Pull to God. And I know Bryn's here ready to take notes. She's got her pen. Bryn, you ready? I'm ready. It's activation time. Yes, it is. I'm excited. It's time travel time. We're traveling through time in a sense to get taught by Ram Dass, as if we were at the lecture. Let's close our eyes. Let's visualize. Let's project the image of Ram Dass in front of us. He's hanging out. He's going to lecture us, and we're there listening with all of these people in Gainesville, Florida. In 1975. November 27th, 1975. So here we go, people. This is called The Pull to God. For the remainder of this weekend, let's consider this room our temple. For we are investing it with a great deal of shakti and love. When you come in here, come in quietly. Begin to honor the space. Tomorrow morning, the incredible Hanuman, which is already, Hanuman has already gone into, so it is quite living, will be hung on the wall over there, just at kissable height, so that you can all share in investing it with the proper amount of love. And then it will be hung on the wall of the little Hanuman temple we we'll have in New York, for it's really a thing of great beauty. There has been a very large amount of input today already. For some of you who already have a deep philosophical structure of what this is all about, it's all second nature to you. For others, you are totally confused, happy, feeling a sense of well-being, perhaps, but confused. That's okay. For I've said before, and I'll say again, the forms are not what it's about. 
what you are receiving this weekend, and I think you're beginning to understand what I'm talking about. You are receiving a transmission of the living spirit through a lineage. And you don't have to know all the words to receive the, the transmission by any means. Often when you're in India, you can go uh, to a Wong, a Tibetan Wong, where for eight or nine days there will be sutras recited. You will not understand a word of it, but you still receive the transmission. For as I said earlier today, we are beginning now to acknowledge realities other than that which is comfortable to the rational mind. And Hanuman is certainly a beginning of that. This morning, when we were out of the lawn doing the breathing, we went up over our heads, came back down into our heart. Up over the head, back down into the heart. You wish we went close into the quiet, impersonal presence of God. We came back into our emotional involvement with humanity. Now that is, that is a pattern of this lineage. And that's why Hanuman is characterized as kneeling and is represented as a servant of Ram, a servant of God. For once a being has worked out their individual karma, his or her individual karma, by surrendering into God, you come to a point where you now, I'm not talking about your body. Your body is merely your package, but you. The wires that attach you to this plane are so subtle that with one snip, you go into God. You merge back into that which is without form. You, you do. And what is left behind is the residue of the package. Your body's left behind and your astral bodies sol dissolve, and you are slowly, your physical body disintegrates, goes back into dust, into earth. You leave. Most beings, when they get to that point, recognize a choice. The choice is, at that point, of going into, not the samadhis that you go into prior to that, where your breath stops, your body becomes stiff, and you go out of your body. Those are different levels of samadhi. There are even samadhis where your body doesn't stiffen. But there is a choice of going into what's called maha samadhi, which is where you indeed leave your body behind and merge back into God. You understand, most people that die don't have this option because they still have a lot of personal karma. And that personal karma, it's like you are a, um, uh, say, this flower with a soul. 
it has connected with it a lot of what would be called, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, there are names in Buddhism, Hinduism, everything for it, uh, sanskaras, they're predisposing tendencies, you might call it. It's like a DNA code. It's, it's clingy stuff, clingy stuff. It's a set of desires that are still lurking in you. And this soul demands a form again to keep working out these desires. The desires keep projecting out a form. They keep creating form. The form may not be on the physical plane like this. You may end up in heaven. That would be nice. But after so many hundred years or thousand years, because time is different on each of these planes, it's still time, but it's different units of time. You use up that karma and you leave that plane. You may just discorporate. You may not die because you don't die on those planes. And then you are still an entity with certain karma and you might come back then and take another human birth. But at some point in your evolution, you come to the point where the veil is very thin because the desires, the personal desires are pretty well gone. There's nothing much you want. You're not attached to being in any particular form in heaven or earth. Everything is what it is, and you can acknowledge it. Ah, uh, so, yes, you're right here. The only pull that is there now is the pull to merge back into God, which is like the pull in sex after a long foreplay, the pull for the orgasm. And as you approach that moment, your third eye is wide open, your eye be single, your being be full of light, you see the entire scene. You understand karma, you understand the laws, you understand the divine law of the universe. You understand all the Buddha fields, you understand the whole way of sanskara. You are wisdom at that moment. You see that all form is suffering. You see that anything in time has suffering in it. You see just what Buddha saw before he enunciated the Four Noble Truths. That moment you have choice. Choice to give up the form, go into the formless, or choice to play in the formless but come back into the form. Why would you come back into the form? It's what in Tibetan Buddhism is called the bodhisattva vow. Why would you come back into the form? Not because of your personal karma anymore. That's all over. There's nothing in you pulling. You don't want anything. You even see the perfection of the universe. You see the perfection of God's work. You even see that the suffering itself, because you began to see that the suffering was what awakened you, you begin to see that the suffering is grace, even though most people don't see it because they're too deep in the illusion. Were there no need for the suffering, there would be no need for this world, and none of us would be on this plane at all. wouldn't exist. This exists because of the karmic needs of the people on it. What you experience is collective karma. You identify with the suffering of all sentient beings. And that identification can keep you in form. At that point, your form is no longer personal. 
you are at that moment an instrument of God. You are at that moment, just as Buddha was when he returned from his enlightenment, you are an instrument of the Dharma. You are a statement which will enlighten those that are ready to be enlightened. That is your only function. It's the only reason you're on earth. The only reason you're here at all. For you're not going to get your rushes here since your rushes come from orgasm with the infinite. And when you've had a lover like that, there's nothing in the world that has much pull. You can enjoy it all, but you, you have the choice to go into God. You have the choice to have it all. Why take little bits of it? See, at this point, you come here, the setting is beautiful, you will have some deep meditations, but then the pull of the world will be strong and it'll pull you back and you'll have to make an effort to meditate. When those feet shift, when the weight shifts, you just sit in meditation and then you think, oh, now I have to leave this to go into form. And the weight has shifted. It's like getting up out of a bed where you're all cuddly on a cold morning to go and light the fire or let the dog out or the cat in or change the baby or go to work. When this balance of feet shifts, when you start to awaken you and you it dawns on you that the whole game is perfect. The whole game is perfect, including all the shit you've been through. It's all perfect. Even the way man's will screws it all up. It's still all, there's perfection in it. There is a tendency to get enamored of the impersonal, the cold impersonal, the beauty of it all, the beauty of the Leela. And you keep saying, but it's all illusion anyway. What are we getting so upset about? Nothing to do, it's all an illusion. You get so fascinated with God, with enlightenment, with the wisdom of the ages. And in your zeal to do that, it's very easy to forget, to forget humanity, to forget politics, to forget human concerns, to forget human suffering, to overlook the daily stuff around you. The image I've used in lectures that I got from my teacher, you get so busy looking at the snow, the pure white snow and the peaks of the Himalayas, because for so many incarnations you've been looking out and down and you finally look up and it's so beautiful. You've never been identified with so much beauty in your life that you'd rather not have to look back down and see that right beneath your feet is blood on the snow, which is the blood from the heart of Jesus. It's the blood of the suffering of form. It's the pull of humanity. It's the pull of humanity. Now, does it seem premature that I'm talking about this to you? After all, most of you are much more pulled by humanity than you are by God. 
you are much more concerned with the crying of your child or the hurt of the puppy dog or the inequality in politics or the way in which blacks are treated or the way in which uh, the religious struggles of peoples. Why am I talking to you about the pull of humanity? That's your problem. See, some of you have the disquieting feeling, I've got to be careful because all these people that go to God, they forget about the world. And what about politics? And what about economics? And what about social responsibility? I mean, am I really playing my part in the dance? As you go up, if you're going up in perfection, as you go up, you keep looking down as well as up. You have one eye going up and one eye going down. One eye is in the world and one eye is in God. If both eyes are in the world, you have nothing to offer mankind except more suffering because you are lost in the illusion. If both eyes are on God, you've forgotten about the world and you couldn't care less, so you don't offer them anything anyway. The predicament is that when you start this journey, you get a little bit of clarity and you want to rush and use it for other people to help your family, your friends, others who are suffering. But that desire is not one that is without attachment. It is an attached desire. It has to do with the guilt that maybe you got something special. It has to do with your attachment to their suffering. And the motivation for why you're doing that does not liberate those people. What most of you will do to help other human beings will help them on one level, on the physical level. If you feed somebody and fill their belly, you help them. If you give them clothing, if you help them raise food, if you help them with medical things, if you help them because they're hurt, if you help them because they're lost, you have helped them on the physical plane, but your motivation for helping them may well have been such that though you helped them on one plane, you perpetuated the illusion of their separateness and thus their suffering. To know that does not drive you to not serve, but it drives you to remember and serve humanity as an exercise and a vehicle for becoming enlightened. For ultimately, the only thing that frees another being is a free being. As Ramakrishna said, if you are in quicksand, you cannot free another from quicksand. I'm an example of that. I'm not a fully realized being. And quite honestly, it's very difficult for me to leave my meditations with God to come and do this. This is my work. This is humanity. This is the pull. I have to do this. This is part of my being. This is my route to God. I've got to do this. But as I do it, I am only doing it as an exercise for my own liberation because if I am doing it motivated to helping you as my motivation, I am attached to me being a helper and you being that which is help 
and I am actually pushing you away in the way I'm helping you as somebody who needs to be helped. And in the long run, I am perpetuating your illusion of separateness. That's a very subtle point, and it may be just too much for you to grasp. Do any of you hear what I'm talking about? And what I just said is part of the way in words that you are protected from that illusion that I still retain. Because I'm telling you there it exists. But more, more directly what's doing it is that in my heart and my being, my work is with God and you are the instruments and the vehicles of my coming to God. And because of that, you are protected. I can't explain to you the subtlety of the way this works because it's an astral type subtlety, but you are totally protected from being hurt in the spiritual sense by my being because of the purity of my commitment to God. Maharaji in India once said, I said, Maharaj, you can't send me back to America because I'm so impure and I can't, I don't mind my own karma, but I can't stand laying karma on other people. And Maharaji said, Ramdas could not hurt anybody in America. And the not hurting anybody comes not because everything I say is totally the statement of God, but because of my motivation in being with you. For I don't, in truth, want power over you. I don't want to control you. I don't want you to worship me. I don't want to collect you. I don't need you. There is no rush that you give me that is anywhere near one billionth what I can get from sitting down in front of my puja table and being in love with God. Not one billionth of it. It is that preoccupation with God on, in me that is what liberates you through whatever it is that I do with you. It's because I don't want you and I don't need you. For if there was the least vibration in me of wanting you or needing you, that would feed your paranoia. It would feed the place in you that is looking because of your long history of being had looking for the way in which you are being conned or exploited this round. Most of you, since you were little children, closed off from trusting other human beings because everybody wanted something. They wanted your body, they wanted your soul, they wanted your mind, they wanted your money, they wanted your power, they wanted something. They wanted your adoration, your adulation, they wanted something. And that closed offness closes you off not only from your fellow man, it closes you off from the flow of the universe. It closes you off from God. You can't afford the paranoia that most of you have lived with most of your life. The funny thing is you don't need it either because you aren't as vulnerable as you thought you were. As you begin to recognize who you are, as I'm trying to show you who you are, who you are is not vulnerable to the human foibles. Nobody can do anything to your soul that way. They can screw around with your body and your mind. But you aren't as vulnerable as you think you are. 
And before you will know God, you will be able to stand naked and wide open with heart wide open as all of the possible horror shows of humanity surround you and pour on you and through you. You will be able to look at disaster, at starvation, at flood, at horror, at death of beloveds. You will be able to look at violence, at ugliness, whether it's done to you or another, with your heart wide open, with blood pouring out of it upon the snow. And at the same moment, that other eye is looking up and sees the total perfection of the dance. And you will have perfect equanimity. Most of you now, when it gets ugly, you turn your heart off. You get cold, you go into your mind in order to protect yourself because you feel so vulnerable. And most marriages are battles of who's hurting who. When you understand what this dance is, nobody can hurt anyone else. If you come on to me and you're ugly and angry and violent, that's your karma. If I react to it, that's my karma. And my work is on myself, not on you. And if I'm sitting with a partner who is a shrew and a bitch, that is her karma. If I get stuck in it, that's my karma. And when I know I'm going to God, I eat that bitchiness. That is known as consuming the mother. What I was talking about at supper time. See, the day has some method in its madness. This is very heavy stuff. I really have to give it in very small doses because this is like baklava. You know, it's very thick and rich and you get nauseous if you eat too much. Right. It's funny to run these, these workshop things, you know, because I know that about a 15 minute message is really about the capacity when it's dense of human consciousness. But then we have 24 hours a day. And it's very delicate to design a dance that allows for the density of this transmission. And as you, if we went on for a month, we would get so there would be 15 minute messages about three times a day and all the rest would be meditation. That's all you really need. But you don't know you need that yet. See? So I have to keep doing this stuff because you think you need it. <laughs> You got to understand how humorous the whole bizarre predicament is we're all caught in. You see, up to a year ago, a year and a half ago, I had been trained in many ways. I had a guru, but my guru left his body. I was honored and respected as a spiritual teacher in America. I had my gig down pretty cool. People loved me, respected me, honored me. I could earn a living. Right. Be here now is uh, Maharaji's gift to everybody through me. I could have ridden that for this lifetime. And I have a great love of humanity. But it wasn't pure. Because the balance wasn't even, because I wasn't deep enough in God. I knew of God and I wanted to want it, but I didn't really want it that bad. But then I began to become horrified by the way in which I was perpetuating illusion. 
And when that despair got deep enough, even though everybody around me was reassuring me that I was doing great things for everybody, but I couldn't live with myself, that was the point that the next teaching became available to me. And I was brought to the teachings that I'm now receiving. I described in the lecture I believe I gave in Gainesville last spring, which some of you were at, the way in which I came to this present teaching. The reason I must tell you of it now is because I must have you understand, if you're receiving the transmission of this lineage, the function and the role of what is called the spiritual hierarchy. It was a year ago last July I had finished teaching at the Naropa Institute in Boulder. I was depressed and determined to stop teaching and seek further training. I didn't know how to do that because I had already up-leveled every scene in America, one way or another. Trungpa had been my last hope, and he turned out not to be pure enough. I didn't know where to go. I decided to return to India to once again seek some spiritual guidance. I was in a motel in Pennsylvania. The electricity went out. I was watching television. I meditated. I was forced to meditate. I had nothing else to do and it was too early to go to sleep. I meditated and in the middle of the meditation, Maharaji came to me and he said to me, you don't have to go to India. Your next teachings will be here in America. And that vision was so real and vital that at that moment I changed my plans and I decided I would go to New Hampshire to meditate. Next day I came to New York City. I was at a chiropractor's. I was waiting for him and there was a phone in the room and I called a woman who has been a spiritual friend and teacher for me. And she said to me, there is a woman you must meet in New York. I said, I don't want to meet anybody. She said, I think you want to meet this woman. I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to New Hampshire. And I talked to her for a few minutes, went, hung up, finished with a chiropractor, went to visit some friends, and in walked this uh, woman who I'd been on the phone with again. And she says, you really must meet this woman that, I, that is, lives in uh, Brooklyn. I didn't really want to meet a woman in Brooklyn. I mean... There's just nothing in it that pulled me. But she called the woman on the phone. The woman said, tell him that his guru is here in my basement. <laughs> and that um, turned the tide. And the next morning, I uh, went out with the woman I had called to Brooklyn, and I came into this house and was taken to the basement where uh, there was a very beautiful woman sitting with her eyes rolled up, her body stiff, no pulse, no heartbeat. Uh, I was having very, very intense reactions to her. First, because of the samadhi state, which was very impressive. But then her way of being was also very impressive. She had incredibly long false eyelashes and heavy mascara, a low-cut dress, she looked like uh, something between uh, Sophia Loren and uh, Anna Magnani or something like that. I mean, that kind of person. 
And she came down out of Samadhi and she looked at me and uh, to her side was a blanket, an empty blanket. And she said um, something to the effect of, uh, what the fuck do you want? And this um, woman that had brought me there said, um, oh dear, this is Ramdas. She said, I don't give a damn who it is. She says, does that dirty old man belong to you? Get him the hell out of here. See, God has a great sense of humor, and you learn, <laughs> you learn. After all, when I met Maharaji, who has affected literally millions of people now through Be Here Now and through me and all the people that came in contact with him, he was this funny old man with no teeth sitting on a blanket in the mountains of the Himalayas. I mean, there I was, an ex-Harvard professor, you know, big deal from the West, and there was this simple little man and uh, he was vast, but he was little, physically little, I guess. I, I always saw him as about nine feet tall, but I guess he was little. And now, again, I'm meeting this completely unbelievable situation. But what I say this afternoon about we learn to be able to handle dissonance, handle situations where it doesn't quite fit in. I had no model at all of a spiritual teacher that could teach me anything that would have false eyelashes and mascara. I want you to know right off that I just don't have those kind of models. I mean, I'm just much too middle class for that. My middle class gurus all either are Tibetan or Indian, and they all look wise, and none of them have long beards, and they say wise things, you know, not like, what the fuck do you want? You know, that is just not my idea of a guru. So I looked over and I didn't see anything on the blanket. So I said, well, I don't know whether that's my guru or not. At which point she went into uh, another state of consciousness and uh, Maharaji started to speak through her. And he proceeded to discuss with me a number of things that he and I had talked about in India before he left his body, things about the temple and the temple trust and various little sort of incidental things about the life in India at the temple that we would relate to each other over, none of which I would particularly ever talk about in the West, and there would be no reason for this woman to know any of that stuff. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, there was no doubt in my mind that Maharaji's consciousness was in this space with me. Well, he wouldn't leave her house, and um, I went to New Hampshire to try to get away from this situation, but I was pretty hooked, and I came back once in October and once in November, and then in December I moved to New York, and I just sort of surrendered to the whole business. And uh, that was just a year ago. And since that time, I have been in full-time training by Maharaji, this woman, and numerous other beings on other planes of existence. 
many of whom speak through her or are available for her to teach from. Here is a woman who has a 10th grade public school education who teaches me things from the Kabbalah, from geometry, recites hour upon hour of poetry, of high, beautiful poetry, mystic poetry, who speaks other languages fluently, who knows my mind inside out. She's not a public teacher. She's not available to you. She has a husband and a family, and they are not the least bit interested in all of this business, which makes it very difficult for her. And in fact, were she to become public, it would destroy her family life and her family so that she must be protected. In the past year, there has really been no place I have been and nobody I have met that she has not known about. If I were to speak to her on the phone and mention any one of you, can you tell me about this fellow that I saw down in Gainesville? I'll give you an example. I told this example before. It's a very far example. I don't know that I told it when I told it before. She said to me once, you're going to go on a trip now down south. This was last year, last when I came down through here. She said, you're going to meet a fat lady. Give her a hug for me. So I promptly forgot this instruction. And I went through Columbia, South Carolina, Durham. I think I might have been Gainesville on that trip. I'm not sure. And I was in Durham giving a lecture in the hall at the University of North Carolina, Duke. And in the second row, there was a group of middle-aged people, and there was one woman who had very fat arms. She was full, very jovial woman. She was laughing, and everything I said in the lecture, she'd laugh at. <laughs> she wasn't laughing at me, she was laughing with me, and it blew my mind because she was so... Uh, I couldn't figure out what she was or who she was, and I was fascinated by her. I remember as I lectured, I kept my consciousness kept being pulled by this woman, but I had forgotten the instruction. And I went back to New York, and the first thing that Joya said to me was, uh, did you hug the, the lady for me? I said, what lady? She said, I told you, you'd meet a fat lady and you would hug her. I said, oh, I forgot. I said, I don't think I met. She says, you know, she was the one in the third row down in North Carolina. I said, oh, that one. <laughs> she said, yeah, she said, she was your mother in a previous incarnation. <laughs> but she said, you'll meet her again, don't worry. Okay. How many levels you want? <laughs> That's the way it is. And when you have no space to hide in, you begin to understand the difficulty of surrender. When your mind becomes wide open to another human being, when there is nowhere to hide at all, nowhere to hold on to your arrogance, your specialness, your false pride, 
your self-pity, your unworthiness. Like I have models, models of how life should be lived by reasonable people. Right? I have reasonable models. Like a reasonable model is, if you want to be rested for a full day's work, you should go to bed, say, at 11 o'clock and get like six, seven hours sleep. That's a model I have. It comes out of Western medicine. Seems like a reasonable model, doesn't it? So at around 11 o'clock, I'd go to bed. At around 11.15, the phone would ring, which is just as you're going to sleep. And it would be Joya. Now is my predicament. Here is the spiritual teacher, my source, calling me, but it's 11.15. She could have called me at 8, but she didn't. She called me at 11.15. And there is that little irritation in me, more than a little irritation, like, what the hell, do you have to bother me now? I mean, couldn't we do it tomorrow or something like that? Especially because at that point she will be in a very high plane of consciousness, so the words are coming out very slow. Okay. <laughs> very, very slow. So there is an exasperating, frustrating, because a sentence may take that long when it could have taken that long, and this is the time you could have been sleeping, because otherwise you'll be a wreck tomorrow. Right? So you'd feel frustration and anger. And she'd go on and on and on talking until you understood what the game was. The game was that she was going to talk indefinitely until you gave up the anger and frustration. Right? And the minute you surrendered, Okay, talk all night. I don't give a damn. The hell with it. She'd say, have a good night. <laughs> now, this is very, very subtle teaching. It seems like total Mickey Mouse stuff. But it is the most incredibly subtle kind of process of cleaning away the stuff in you the models and molds you have of who you are and what you're about that keep closing you down and closing you down. It's like I walked in and I met um, one of us who I've known for many years and he said, um, this is going fine, but he said, I've got this stomach problem and all this stuff and, and fasting because my metabolism, and he gave me a whole model of who he thinks he is. And there is a certain humor in that from my point of view because I will be having a raging fever and a virus and I'll have every good grounds for doing what I love to do which is curl up in bed with hot lemonade and and be sick because that was the thing you always got the love from your mother I always did I don't know about you but I always got incredible love no matter how bad I was when I was sick enough right? and I'd say to Joya gee I'm so she'd say what do you got I'd say God I feel so sick she'd say well give it up I mean, I say, you're the divine mother. Why don't you love me and feed me lemonade and stuff like that? And she says, just give it up. Right? And she would make me go to class, do everything just as I come to see her, just as I would regularly have to do, sickness or not, until the sickness was just going to be such a nuisance I had to give it up because I didn't get it reinforced at all. One by one, the models and molds of who I am and how I function slowly eaten away slowly eaten away. I now, not here because I'm 
away. <laughs> the mouse is away, because it's away from the cat. And it doth play. But in New York City, for the past uh, 11, 12 months, at least in the past six months, I sleep um, three hours a night. Because she keeps me going right to the end. Like at two in the morning, she stops. And I have to get up at five. And I'm boxed in. There's no way I can get out of it. I've got to either run away, but if I run, I'm running from that which is pure, but I don't want to surrender to it. You hear what the predicaments are of life? So you keep surrendering, you keep surrendering, you keep surrendering. And the more you surrender your models and your molds in your mind about what you think God is about and how it works and who you think you are and how you work, the more you are open to the flow of the universe, the closer you come into God. The reason I wanted to tell you all of this, the quality of this woman, the quality of Maharaji, that was the most critical quality of both of them was the degree of their purity of being. For I had never met beings this pure before. The last time I had ever touched that kind of purity was when I was part of a contingent from San Francisco of hippies. I was sort of the hippie from the Haight-Ashbury. And I was meeting with the Hopi elders to arrange a Hopi hippie bee-in in Grand Canyon. Right? And I was the representative of the hippies and the Hopi elders all gathered in Hota Villa in Arizona. And I remember sitting around a kitchen table with these elders. And there weren't enough chairs, so I was on the floor. So I could look under the table and over it. And under the table were all these gnarled old, the youngest of them was 68, and they went up to about 110. These lots of turquoise, but these old hands that were like roots reaching into the earth. It was incredibly beautiful hand. And the young youngster in the group, the 68-year-old one, was telling me about their predicaments with the uh, Bureau of um, Indian Affairs. And he said, our young man, one of our young men was in an automobile accident with a car belonging to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs car was over the yellow line, but they, the police the next day, they found a bottle in the gutter and they said our young man was drinking. And then he said to me, we ask our young man, he said he was not drinking, he speak truth. And he looked at me in such a way that I knew at that moment that that was exactly the way it was. And I realized that we who live with lawyers and contracts and total distrust had lost that connection where people spoke that way with one another. They just said it the way it was. And I felt like I was connected to something very almost primordial, something that was before my own life experience. Because I come out of a family of lawyers where nobody trusts anything. And here I am with my guru in India and now with Joya, feeling again a quality of purity of being that makes, there's one thing in the world that's left that makes me cry, and that's purity. 
far out. When I see somebody purely wanting to go to God, a purity in them, I weep. I absolutely weep. I can't stand it. It's a quality in beings. It's, a, it's an innocence. It's a regained innocence. And the person may have been as jaded as can be. It's most beautiful when somebody is very worldly and jaded and tough, like I am in many ways, and then opens to that purity again. That's the purity of the sweetness of God coming through a being. And that's part of the transmission, part of that transmission. For as I said earlier, what I offer you is that I don't want you and I don't need you. And that I love you independent of what you do or say. I love you, allowing you the choice to go to God or not to go to God. And very rarely in your life have you ever been in this situation before with another human being. I want nothing from you. I need nothing from you. And I can love you because my love is not conditional because I don't need anything from you. I don't need you to love me. And that space is a space that frees you from a paranoia that is so deep within you. That is a part of the transmission. And that is the transmission of being to being. We are offering each other our beings. And the forms are just the forms. And we're back, everyone, after an amazing lecture from Ram Dass from 1975 again from Gainesville, Florida. That was a really powerful one. I really love his fluid kind of focus. He has a really clean way of communicating that makes it easy to grasp these really high frequency concepts, these spiritual concepts. It's deep. It was kind of like activating things in my brain. I kind of feel like it was very psychedelic because when you start to think about those things, when you really go there, that the frequencies themselves of those thoughts, perhaps they have a biochemical effect on the human body. I'm not really sure, but I, it feels that way sometimes. Bryn, what did you think? Oh yeah. I thought that was amazing. Um, I think you're right. I think that there's those frequencies are there and it's something that you're able to tap into when uh, he's opening that up for you. Um, I liked how he was talking about like the, the way that he started the lecture saying you're receiving a transmission of the spirit through a particular lineage. And you know, you're not going to probably understand half of what I'm saying, but you're receiving the transmission anyway. And I really appreciate that because like you said, like there's a density to it and you know, you can go all different directions with however, you know, however you perceive it in your personal life, all the things that he's saying. And regardless of your perceptions um, and what you're actually understanding, you're receiving a transmission. And it is from a particular lineage, from the lineage that he's learning from. And I think that there can be so, you know, I mean, there are so many different lineages. It could be the hippie Hopi lineage that you're learning from. It could be the, you know, the, in India, it could be anywhere in any setting. Um, and there's transmissions that happen. And I think that universal, the universal truths come through. 
Yeah, you can definitely feel that. Wow, that was that was quite the universal transmission there, <laughs> Brynn. Wow. It might have been a ramble, but... <laughs> no, no, it was great. Um, but yes, while he talked about how part of the spiritual path is understanding the laws of the universe and the law of the universe, and we talk about that a lot on this podcast, I believe the law of the universe would be love. Love everything, love all. That one love frequency... But then understanding the laws would be like the universal laws, like the law of attraction, the law of vibration, law of divine compensation. There's so many. There's dozens of them, actually, if you really break it down, because there's so many people that have tapped into that. There's probably infinite laws in a way. Definitely. I think one of the really interesting points he made, too, which is not exactly about those laws, but just how I guess we perceive them Um is when he's talking about when you're working with the laws and working on your own development and spirituality that the the purpose of why you're doing it and getting stuck in that attachment of like being the helper or the helped and perpetuating really paradigms of people being in need of help or being the helper. And that's a whole interesting thing that I feel like isn't really, that isn't really pointed out often. Interesting. So he's talking about when he is doing his service, the whole point is for his own enlightenment. It has nothing to do with saving you or, you know, doing this thing for you that he's doing it for himself. And then that frees you for your own path and your own ability to follow all the laws and, and karma and do all of those things. And that's a really, I don't know, that's a, a different perspective. Yes. And I like how he talked about the behind the scenes aspect of just form itself, soul taking form and how the yeah. desire to take form happens based on these certain motivations in that ethereal realm. It's really powerful information. Right. The clingy stuff. It's good. <laughs> I know, it sticks really, to you the want to like get back and try it again and do better next time or have this experience again, which is, yeah. Or be cool the Bodhisattva as he was yeah. talking about the person that wants to come back and help everyone evolve so we can all get there. There was one thing that I thought was really interesting. The second half, which was this part of his life, this era of his life with this channeler Joya. You know, I've read a lot of Ram Dass's books and I do remember reading a lot of what he was talking about with her then, but I didn't get this much detail and I didn't really understand it in an in the context kind of lecture way where he's feeling passionate about it, communicating in the present tense. And it's really interesting because there was a woman, it seems, who was channeling Neem Karoli and channeling other things and was able to transmit information to Ramdas that verified the authenticity of the information. So very powerful stuff there. And the Hopi hippie gathering in Arizona, I wonder what that was like. Did it actually happen, people? Let me know. Send me an email. Do you know anything about that, Britt? I actually don't know anything about that. No, but that is interesting um, and would be cool to hear about if 
someone was there, somebody knew about it who's listening. Yeah, that would be um, really cool. I was coincidentally, and there's no synchronicities as we were just talking with Yannick Silver about that. I was just thinking about the Hopi this morning and their beaky bread that they make. And I was thinking about it that randomly and how they cook it on a stone and random thought in my head. And as I was driving and it's interesting as we close the evening today, I'm talking about this. It's so powerful. It's a transmission <laughs> from the Hopi. Definitely. Um, what did you think about eat the bitchiness? <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Wait, let me get oh, to okay. that. Cause definitely we should get to that. No, but um, when he was talking about Joya and he made the points about how she didn't fit his model of like, of what a guru was or what a teacher was or, and I think that that is a transmission in itself and something really important to keep in mind. And he kept saying like all of her teachings were subtle. It was, it wasn't even about what she was saying. It was about the point of letting go of being annoyed of being woken up at night. And that was the whole point of the teaching, not even the words that she was saying. So, you know, when he's talking about her and all that, and he's talking about her not meeting the, you know, preconceived model of what a teacher is, or she's using vulgar language or whatnot. And just a reminder to myself and, you know, to all of us about all of those preconceived models of what we expect, you know, this means this, and this can only be learned from this source, or this can only be passed down from this source, or you can only, you know, come about this in this way that that's usually not true. So just, yeah, the, the thoughts about uh, being careful about deciding that there are only preconceived models to in which to learn from in certain ways. Yes, exactly. And, you know, getting back to eat the bitchiness. <laughs> which, the mother. Yeah, whoa. Yes. That's, that's how he was kind of articulating those concepts for the Western mind. But it's an ancient concept concepts that spiritual people have been practicing in India for a really long time. And tell me what you think that means to you, Brent. Well, I mean, he said it pretty plainly that no one, no one can really hurt anyone else. It's on you. Like someone can be super, you know, grumpy and annoying and mean, or somebody can yell at you out on the road because you turned the wrong way or whatever. And it's, that's, that's their karma. That's their problem. That's their anger. That's, whatever path they're on. And then you have your own choice of how to respond to that. You can get out and yell at them. And then that becomes your karma that, you know, you brought more anger into the world in that moment, or it's your karma to, you know, give them a smile. And, and then that's, you know, that's the ripple that goes out into the world. So, um, yeah. So I guess you eat the mother, you eat that. I mean, I know that in my herbalism classes a lot, we talk about eating in the shadow. And I think it's just another way of saying that, that you're, you're consuming that which doesn't serve you and not getting sucked into the bag of shadow or the whatever, the bitchiness. You're, you're choosing to uh, go beyond it and consume it and transmute it into something greater or into whatever, more of your service. That's amazing. Yes. Channeling that energy, channeling in a different way, using your mind itself to move that energy. I thought that was a really powerful lecture. It's kind of a lot to process and digest. And 
it really keep saying that you probably don't even get what I'm saying half the time, but it's cool. Like you'll get 15 minutes of it. Exactly. And it did seem <laughs> to kind there. of like really activate things in my consciousness. As I'm listening to that, I feel enlightened in a way. It's really powerful. We're learning from Ram Dass, me and you and Brynn. It was so awesome. For sure. And it's, it's a really interesting thing. And I think it's so counter to what we expect. Like when we say, people say, I love you to each other. When people do things for each other and there's, even when you don't think about it on a conscious level, there's still a lot of just unconscious conditioning in the expectation of reciprocity and the expectation of, of, you know, I say, I love you. You say, you love me. Like I give you something, you say, thank you. Like all these different expectations that we have. And so for him to be this blunt, like, I don't need anything from you. I don't want you. I don't need you. It's such a, like, it's so freeing, but I think it, it does hit a wall for people at first because it's, it's not what you expect to hear. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Anyways, apparently I've been activated. Maybe it was my Tulsi chai, but um, I it think got me pretty been. chatty. I don't know. I was, a, I was a really, I really enjoyed uh, uh, all the things that came out of that. So I don't well, know. Well, you should talk more. I mean, I love it when you talk. It, <laughs> it's a co-host situation. There's sure. no set path on who talks how long and when it's just totally free flowing <laughs> that's what we love about this part of the show and of course listen people we love ramdas and guess what if you didn't know i'm telling you now ramdas has a podcast himself and he was on it considerably all the way up until he graduated and there's hundreds of episodes there that's the here and now podcast and the website for that is be here now network.com and i just want to add that just in general for my own experience in my own life ramdas played a huge role in helping me raise my vibration helping me be a better person helping me understand spiritual things sometimes i still get upset when things happen that are low frequency or unconscious or just weird. You see it out in the world in many manifestations. You see it and it gets frustrating, but still you have that high frequency love. You tap into that. And Ram Dass has helped me understand that in so many ways in life. He's helped me grow. I've learned so much from this guy. What an incredible human being. So I'm super honored that we got to listen to that through the time stream. Is there anything else you want to say before we go, Brent? I think, I think we're going to wrap this one up here. <laughs> uh, well, what you were just saying, you still get angry about low frequency stuff, but uh, he reminds us to step back and look at the perfection in it all. And that's something important. And also um, I liked how he talked about the having if you have both eyes down, then you're you know too deep in the illusion. If you have both eyes up, then you're too detached to do anything about it or care and so to always have one eye up and one eye down i like that that's um that's a great daily reminder i think totally so i guess the transmission that we received through that lineage as Bryn was saying and ramdas was saying 
The transmission of Midnight on Earth is about to come to an end. So again, people, check out BeHereNowNetwork.com. And if you haven't discovered Ram Dass yet, maybe this is your first experience, actually. I didn't even think about that. So many listeners, it's quite possible. So many new listeners, maybe this is your first Ram Dass experience. Take the deep dive, people. Check out Be Here Now, the book. My God, that was a game changer for me. Okay, thank you, Bryn, for being here. That was incredible. Absolutely. Your presence was amazing. Sure, thanks for having You're me. You're a joya in my life. <laughs> that was good, right? That was punny. Incredible lecture, everyone. I love learning from Ram Dass. We'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.